Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Canberra Business Podcast. I've uh, got another wonderful guest with us today in the studio, Glenn Keyes from Aspen Medical. Welcome to the Canberra Business Podcast. Yeah, thank you very much. It's an honour to be here. Mate, we're looking forward to it. Aspen Medical has a global footprint, doing amazing things, but the, the truth that not many people would know is that it started in a moment of great crisis, and this was the moment where you had to decide whether you would develop a career in business or pursue your, your heart's desire as a professional bell ringer. So take us back, mate. We always like to do this at the start. We like to know some of the backstory. And everybody has, um, Michelle Melbourne from Intellidox was a, was a gifted trumpet player. Bell ringing, please tell us. How did this happen? Yeah, it's a slight exaggeration to say a professional bell okay. ringer. But no, I was in England actually at, uh, when I was with the military doing um, my flight test engineering course. And we had just moved into a new house in a new village. And the guy who was moving out invited us to the pub for his farewell tour. And I'm standing there chatting away, as you do, to the locals. And this guy, quite tall lawyer, was looking me over. And I thought, bloody hell, I've broken some unwritten British pub rule that you don't wear jeans on a Wednesday. Or you don't drink cold beer. In Lent or something, (laughs) whatever it was. Anyway... I said, is there a problem? He goes, no, I'm just looking. You've got, it looks like you're quite fit. He said, uh, and I thought, mm, that's a bit odd. Why would you be saying that? And he said, oh, we've got a bell ringing group here. And I went, what, like the ones on the table? He said, no, 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 in the steeple of the church, you know, with the ropes and everything. And I went, oh, I'm not really sure that's my thing. He said, look, we only ring for about half an hour, an hour, and then we come to the pub for the rest of the night. I said, I'm in. Oh, yeah. Let's give it a go. I said, do we have to ring on Sundays at church and stuff? And he goes, oh, no, we're not good enough for that. The the priest doesn't trust us to ring oh, on yeah. a Sunday. So we just ring on a Wednesday night. Okay. I went down and never been in a steeple before. There's In, in this particular church, there were eight bells, yeah. uh, eight ropes, and you uh, it's quite complicated. You have to ring the bell up. Uh, so it's a particular way they ring. And I started practicing, and, and we would all ring for half an hour an hour and then we'd go to the pub for two or three hours afterwards it was great fun there you go and then we uh we actually got good enough that we got to ring on the morning of mothering sunday which is mother's day wow. uh to to ring the village to come to church and when we left my wife was pregnant with our uh, very first child yep. and we got home we'd sent them a note that sian had been born and about three months later we get a little cassette tape that they had rung a half peel which is a time period a half peel on the bells on a Sunday to celebrate the birth of our daughter. Well, there you go. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. So how old were you at that stage? Oh, that's a good question. Probably, did it have to be 20, 25 years okay. ago? Because I was thinking before when I, when I saw that you had that background, I thought normally when guys are younger, they you know they get into music, it's usually guitars or drums to impress the ladies, but, uh, you know, bell ringing. Mate, thanks for sharing that with us. I want to <laughs> jump in. There's, um, there's, we're going to talk business. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of great stuff. But we always like to talk about the backstory a little bit. Tell us a little bit of your backstory, family-wise. Like, where, where did you grow up and uh, what's the family backstory? So, I grew up in Newcastle. Mum and Dad owned and ran their own businesses. They had two shops. They did uh, gifts. So, you know, gifts for people. They did toys and they did wool, uh, Peyton's wool. Wow. So, we grew up that, you know, every Saturday morning, because this is when all the shops closed at Saturday lunch, yeah. every Saturday morning, we'd work there every school holidays, particularly Christmas, you'd work in the shops. We had two shops, one in Mayfield, one in Hamilton, yeah. and we lived above our shop. And so, I, you know, grew up being involved in business. I think the other thing that was great was that mum and dad were absolute equals in the business. Mum knew what to buy, so she knew what people would buy, and dad could sell 
ice to Eskimos. Really? So it was a great balance between the pair of them. Mum would do the books. Dad would be down because we had wool. We had all of this additional stuff, you know, buttonholes and and uh, cuffs and collars. And Dad had a knitting machine. He would do the knitting machine. So it was a very egalitarian way to grow up yeah. and to get used to seeing that. So uh, for me, it was a great model of gender equity without really being told that or having that it forced on me. Did they ever argue over business? They didn't argue. I remember one case, uh, you remember the Batman TV show, right? oh, Adam the original West. Adam West. Yeah, you yeah. got it. And uh, back then, there was no ordering online or anything. There were travellers, and a traveller would come around, and he'd have a station right. wagon, yeah. and he'd have one of all of the toys or whatever they were selling in yeah, there. Yeah. Dad had been away for the day, came home, and mum said, oh, you know, John, whoever, the traveller, just came around, and they've got these new Batman suits. And so they were in a, you know, a container, a little plastic bag thing yeah, and yeah. have the, the hood and the cape and the utility belt. Dad said, oh, okay. Mum said, yeah. So uh, dad said, oh, how many did you buy? Mum said, oh, I bought a hundred. And dad said, you're insane. <laughs> we're going to have to give them away. Okay. You know, there's yeah. so many of them. Mum said, oh, God, I don't think so. You know, Glenn and Shane, Shane's my brother, you know, they watch it all the time. Their mates running around pretending to be Batman and Robin yeah, and the yeah. Penguin. I think they'll sell. Dad said, no, you're wrong. Gone in a week. Really? Gone in a week. And dad he, he dad came up guy. and went. Dad came up and said, "You know, great idea. We bought those Batman suits. That was really there you go. Clean. yeah, good idea. I had. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. The founder of uh, Hewlett Packard famously said that nothing happens in business until there's a sale. Mm. I always like that because you make business so complex. But at the end of the day, if there ain't a sale, you don't have a business. With the way you talk about that complementarity in your parents, that you have that. Your mother, who's got that sort of sounding, sounds like more analytical. She's organised. She knows what has to happen." And he can sell in your own business now. Like you've got, you know, Andrew Walker as a partner. Is something of that concept of partnership that you saw witness very young? Does that play out? Has that played out in your own business life over the years? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Andrew and I were mates from school, so we knew each other at school. We were best men at each other's weddings. Andrew's a doctor and and an incredibly separately successful medical business career. He had a huge number of day surgery clinics around Australia uh, that he sold and did credibly well. Quite a number of other businesses as well, after hours, GP services, all sorts of stuff. So Andrew's medical background is incredibly strong and also understanding that side of the business. And where I came in was the understanding of government businesses, tendering, yeah. project management, operationalizing, that sort of stuff. So there, there was a really, really good mix. And we've then rolled that out across the company. Sure. So, you know, the people that we have running our projects in Iraq or in Indigenous Health or in mobile surgeries or any of those, they are fantastic in those areas. We know what we can bring to them, yeah. but we absolutely rely on their inherent skills base. We are not the smartest guys in the room by yeah. a long way. So you mentioned that, you know, you're talking about your parents. You say, I call it in my own marriage because Karen and I worked together for many years. I call them robust discussions. So you only, you know, you talk about the appearance with the Batman uh, suits and your dad's brilliant idea to order them. But then when you have these tough conversations in your own business life, you've, you've, you've been on record as saying that with Andrew, you know, unless you can both convince each other, um, you don't go ahead. So I'm jumping forward a bit here, but, but how do you resolve difficult conversations in your own, at, at the strategic level of your own business? How do you do that? In pretty much the same way, we'll have the discussion. Sometimes we may need to come back to it two or three times, yeah. but we will have that discussion and, and we'll present it. And both of us are willing to change our opinions, which I think is, is a key part. You're not just sitting there locked in stone. You're willing to go, oh, I hadn't seen that. Maybe, yeah, let's give it a go and we'll have a look at it and see oh, yeah. how it goes. They've got a whole bunch of stuff I 
do want to ask you, but but give us the the overview of Aspen's evolution. It starts with the NHS under the Blair government, I think, and mm-hmm. you guys are, are, are coming into the NHS in the hospital system there to shorten orthopedic waiting times. But that's a long time ago now in the evolution of this business. Take us through the journey. All of our initial contracts were all overseas. So we actually won a consultancy in England to begin with to review orthopedic surgery. We leveraged that into a delivery contract where we cleared 5,000 hip and knee replacements and 7,000 minor orthopedic procedures and 5,000 outpatient appointments across seven sites in the north of England in 12 months. Uh, We then won the contract to roll out a complete healthcare solution in the Solomon Islands. So, you know, we're managing projects not in Australia, not not even locally to us, but in foreign countries with different jurisdictions and roles. We then grew from there into doing work for state governments. Our next big contract was in Caboolture, taking over the emergency department there. We then grew into Timor where we rolled out a very similar model to the Solomon Islands. We grew defence work, where we took over bases of Puckapunyal and Albury until slowly we were then running every single defence base in Australia. And we're now sitting there with sort of five key areas. So we do defence work around the world. We're in 16 countries now around the world, over 2,000 staff. So defence, Indigenous, we have the largest single Indigenous health contract in Australia, the remote Area Health Corps. Yeah. As at late last year, we'd provided 5,000 health professionals into remote Indigenous communities yeah. in the Northern Territory alone. Public health, like surgery waiting lists, running emergency departments, dental waiting lists. Yeah. The resource sector, uh, we're the largest single provider to the oil and gas industry in Australia. We've got aeromedical evacuation aircraft that we own uh, that are now conducting AMEs around Australia and in Africa. And then finally, humanitarian disaster management development work. So we've just finished a major contract in Iraq where we ran trauma hospitals and maternity wards. Mm -hmm. And we did over 47,000 surgical cases and delivered 3,000 babies in Iraq in the last 15 months. Wow. I have a bunch of questions. Let's let's, let's jump in. The first thing I want to ask you was uh, you and Andrew grew up in Newcastle. So... Usually, not always, but often when people build businesses like this, they've, they they come from maybe the eastern suburbs of Sydney. They've they've gone to Cranbrook or, or Scotts, and they've got this amazing, you know, sort of pathway almost paved for them to build something as as effective and as big as you have. What do you think, looking back, that your background in Newcastle—that's a that's a working town. What do you and Andrew bring from that initial experience in the business? That that how you grew up there. Both our parents owned and ran their own businesses. Yeah, and Andrews. Dad particularly ran several businesses. And so we'd both been brought up in that environment that business wasn't some distant, you know, unreal sort of ethereal idea. It was what what happened in the house every single day. And we were always involved in it. We had both developed, you know, our own little businesses at school and all of that sort of stuff. So we'd got our feet wet doing those sort of things individually. I joined the military straight out of school. I was 16 when I I joined the military and went to Duntroon here in Canberra. But Andrew did medical school and and Andrew then actually started his own businesses while he was at university. So he'd had a a longer business career than I had had uh, developing his own business. And, And we'd stayed good friends and mates for a long period of time during that independent development, if you like. What do you admire about him in terms of, for a, for a partnership to last and be as effective as it has, what do you value about this, about him as a person? 
he knows his stuff. He's incredibly passionate about the business and, yeah. and around its delivery. You know, I don't think I know anyone who can go through a set of financials like Andrew can and right. can literally flip through them and then stop and go, oh, there's a problem with that. Really? And you're there going, I'm still going, I'm on page three. Where are you? You know, trying to play catch up with him. He's very, very quick to understand the interpretation and the derivation of those numbers. With a medical uh, background though? Was oh yeah, absolutely. So where did he pick up his finance stuff? Oh, well, it's just, just there. I think he's just up. good at it. He's also an amazing doctor. You know, quite honestly, he uh, his understanding and grasp of medicine as a field is really quite astounding, oh, yeah. really. So his ability to be able to take those two areas of, of business finance and medicine and draw them together has been you know, an absolutely key element of his success. And on a personal level, what uh, character traits do you value about that partnership? Like, he's, he's obviously professionally gifted. What keeps you two walking the journey together? He's very loyal. He's very, very committed. He's, you know, very loyal to people that commit to him. And that's a fantastic trait. It yeah. really, really is. It's funny you talk about his, he can just spin through financials. My father used to tell me that apparently Napoleon could read his muster list um, sometimes up to half a million troops and recognise errors on the on the paper. So some people just have that phenomenal gift. I want to ask you about uh, Louise, who we had on one of the first guests, talked a lot about opportunity, about the ability to look around you and go, you know, there is something we can fix. So I want to talk about when, when you and Andrew were first looking at this issue in NHS and then it, it grows from there. How did you first say, hey, there's an opportunity here? What happened for you two to perceive that opportunity? So I was working for my current employer. I was over in UK doing some work. Andrew and I both have a very, very good friend who's a doctor, professor actually, in the UK. I rang him to say I was in town and he said, oh, can you come up for dinner? I said, mate, I can't. I've got meetings. I'm going straight to Heathrow. I'm on the 11 o'clock plane out tonight. And he said, I'll meet you at Heathrow. Yeah. Let's go. He said, there's a Hyatt just at Heathrow. I'll meet you there for dinner. So I turned up for dinner and we were chatting. He's a really good friend. Andrew and I were both at his wedding. We Andrew introduced me to him when he was studying in Cambridge yep. and Oxford. Uh, Damien said, uh, right, Tony Blair is going to completely revolutionise how healthcare is done in this country. He's going to change waiting lists. He's going to do all of this sort of stuff. But he's going to need people from outside the country to come and do this. And I said, oh, okay then. And he said, because... Most people don't know, but the NHS is the third largest employer in the world. Okay. Only the Chinese Army and the Indian Railways That's has right. more people than the NHS. He said, so subsequently, a lot of the private health care has all come out of the NHS. Wow. So there's a bit of group think going on within the country. So I came back and I said to Andrew, great opportunities, medical business, you know, you should have a look. And Andrew said, look, it is, absolutely. He said, but gosh, a lot of this is with the government and it's government tendering and it's project management and it's people management and operationalizing stuff. He said, I, I run high street, you know, retail, large complex retail businesses, but retail, yeah. not government contract tendering yeah. stuff. And I said, mate, that's a, it's easy. I do that every single day of the week. And he goes, great. Well, if you do that bit, I'll do the medical bit yeah. and we'll see how we go. So that's where it started. Were you nervous starting or was it just a sense we're going to have a crack at this? Do you, you remember looking back being, uh, did you feel like you were biting off more than you could chew or was it one step at a time? So, you know, I had three kids, one with an intellectual disability. Yeah. So we had a mortgage, we were living in Canberra. I had a well-paying job. I wasn't super happy in it, but I had a well-paying job. And I had a job as long as I wanted. May not have had a career, but I had a job, yeah. right? 
So very good, stable, guaranteed. And Andrew and I had been talking about this and we'd been chatting to Damien and putting it stuff together. And I'd, oh yeah, I don't think about this. Anyway, Andrew rang one Sunday morning and said, right, I've been chatting to Damien. You know, you need to make a decision. I said, yeah, okay then. Well, look, let me have a think about it. We'll chat at the end of the week. He said, no, today. Really? He said, you need to make a decision today because I think we need to move on this. Yeah. And uh, I said, all right, I'll call you back at the end of the day. So I went out and I cleaned the car. <laughs> For nine hours. Uh, it was immaculate. The cleanest, was it? A, what, oh, the, what year was this? Oh, this is in 2003. Okay. So, yeah, no, it was absolutely immaculate. The engine underneath, the wheels, and everything. It was just, it was beyond clean. And is this what you do when you're facing? No, it's what I did then. <laughs> what you did then, okay. And so I, um, I came back in and I spoke to Mel and I said, look, you know, I'm thinking that I'll do this. And I said, and I sort of thought, if it doesn't work... You know, I could go back to my old employer, perhaps. I said, I always get a lot of requests out of defence to come back as a reservist. I can go get a couple of hundred days. Worst case, I could join up again. I could be an individual consultant. A lot of consultants in Canberra. I think I've got four or five paths if it doesn't work. Yeah. What do you think? And my wife is relatively conservative in a view, which is a good foil to me because yeah. I'm happy to take a few risks. And Mel said, I oh, know you, you know, because we've been talking about this for quite a while. Yeah. She said, oh, no, you should absolutely do this. And I said, what? She said, yeah, I've known since you spoke about it. And I said, what, you couldn't give me you a hint? You tell me. Bit of a push. She said, no, you needed to get there on your own. Really? So we uh, we took the risk and started. Yeah, and it was nervous because, you know, I'm, I'm walking away from a well-paid, guaranteed job to set up a business that was like no other in Australia at the time. So let me ask you, just related to that, and a moment ago you were talking about the sheer complexity of what Aspen's now doing globally, and I know you've got a great team, but faced with that decision back in 2003 and complexity in general, do you get stressed? Do you w wake up at 2 a.m. staring at the ceiling? Like We ask that question a lot because a lot of the entrepreneurs and business people we have, they wrestle with a lot of stress. I mean, back then, do you, do you get stressed by complexity and all that stuff? No, not really. No. Yeah, of course, there's always moments of stress, right? You know, moments of stress over a very, very difficult customer or... A contract coming to an end or a, a really difficult bid that you're doing and of course you'll get stressed to say i wouldn't have any stress in 15 years would be yeah. you know it would be a lie but in the main no i i really enjoy the problems i i'm a little bit competitive you know there's no contract for coming second so yeah. winning is the only thing that counts yeah. you know i know it was a major bid that we'd won and had run and had been a, a real staple of the company for a while. It was up for retender, and I'd been thinking about it. We had a big session the next day, and I, I don't and I never wake up at two in the morning. Really? I never wake up at two in the morning. I might have trouble going to sleep, yeah, and I'll work and I, I actually work quite well late. But once I go to bed, I'm asleep. Really? Yeah, and I, I might wake up at I don't know six, but I never wake up at two in the morning and wander around. But on that particular occasion, I was lying in bed thinking about it, and I thought, no, this isn't helping. So I got up, I pulled the tender out, I went through the tender, highlighted everything, wrote a PowerPoint to present to the team, here's the key issues, here's some wind themes, what else do you think we need to do, blah, blah, blah. Finished it up at about, I don't know, two in the morning or something, closed it up, went to bed, slept like a <laughs> slept like a log till it was time to get up and get the kids to, to school, and walked in and said, right. I've been through the entire tender. Here's all the key issues. Here's the discriminators. Here's where we need to focus. Let's go from here. 
So you're not a ruminator. Basically, when when the pressure's on, it's what are the necessary action steps here that we need to just hear? Yeah, yeah. I, I, of course, I do ruminate, you know, and I'll I'll mull, and you know, particularly over things, I'll take stuff and I'll it's like I put them in the back of my head and I'll work through them yeah. to see what do they mean by that, what should we do. But you know, I'm pretty comfortable making a decision. So one of the things you talk about being passionate about in the business is uh, there's a nice line you have where this idea of being able to deliver healthcare where others say it's impossible, and you also love the people that can make this happen. But I, I, you mentioned before being competitive. Have you always been that way? You've always had a, some aspect of a competitive nature? Uh, look, I, I have. I've not always been in the right place to do it, but certainly I think I've been competitive. I'm a bit of a believer in fate. Right, that I think sometimes you're put in the right spot. Yep. You know, when they say, Oh, you're very lucky, sometimes I think you're presented with opportunity, and then it's what you make of that opportunity. Yeah. And some people go, Oh my god, you got presented with that opportunity, and look what you did with it. Yeah, aren't you lucky? And I think other people have opportunities and they miss them. Yeah, so but I'm also a believer that in our lives, we have a time in our lives when it counts. And you know, do I think at school or at uni? That was really me. No, not really. I sort of was not, you know, I don't think I shone particularly. I got by. I did okay. I think I did better in the military. I think once I got out of uni and I was a young officer, I think I did pretty well. I enjoyed it and I thought I was good at it and I reported well and I was doing well. When I was in a couple of jobs, I thought I did okay and I did pretty well. But I think, you know, right now, this time with Aspen, this is the arc in my life, this is the bit that I was sort of meant for. If you really? Know. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. There's a, there's a lot of, in, in a lot of history, like I read a brilliant 4,000-page biography of Lincoln a few years ago. It's meant to be the best one that's been written. And you see this long, long period of preparation. You know, I mean, he it wasn't until 1860 that he really was the right man in the right place at the right time. And the amount of failure and challenge and difficulty that he went through and suffering that he went through before it was the moment so this idea about you know delivering healthcare or others say it's impossible I, I, when i was taking notes I, I wrote down the word belief like at some level you must be driven by a strong belief that the execution of a particular thing can happen right like it's a mindset that leads the execution talk to me about that level of self-belief or belief in your company or your people seems to be pretty strong. Look, it is. You know, we, we often talk about all the projects we've done and delivered on. But, you know, there's a, there's a large number of projects we walked away from. Yeah. Because when we evaluated, when we looked at them, I just went, oh, I don't see how anyone's going to do that. So we know enough about making assumptions. Mm. We know enough about challenging ourselves and going, is that the only solution? Could we do it this way? Could we consolidate things could we get people out how do we make all of these things happen at the same time we're very open so as in and by that i mean i'm not just sitting around the table going i'm the smartest guy in the room because yeah. i know i'm not i've got brilliant people around the room i know the decision rests with me so, so when things fail they're my failures i own those but i will take advice from everyone around the room because yeah. it all counts but when the call's made it's mine you're talking about a few key things that, that have come up in the notes. I asked you sort of what is it that you really love doing day to day and you talk about the developing the strategic direction and pursuits and you just mentioned that, like things you've walked away from. 
if your X factor really, if your real, is, I mean, I'm guessing here that your ultimate value add at this moment in the business's evolution is this strategic direction and deciding what you go and don't go on. So what I want to ask you is, you've got an engineering background. In the Australian Financial Review, you talked about if someone says, take that hill, you're very good at going, what is every, take a blanket statement, take that hill, and you can break down every single part of that. I want to ask you about your decision-making process around what you pursue and don't pursue. Is this intuition? Do you just look at all the stuff and go, and you go with that? Or are you totally head-driven? What? How do you make these big decisions on what to go for or leave alone? Absolutely intuition really? at the start. At, at the, the start. Because you look at it and you go, oh, yeah, no, we can do that. Yeah, that, that sounds pretty cool. I think we can make that happen. Now, there are times when you do that and then when you start to break it down, you look at it, you go, yeah, there's no way we can cut this. And then you need to be strong enough to go, all right, we thought we could do it, but now when we've broken it down, we can't. So let's just call it quits and move on. We're not going to pursue that. So there is, it's got to be a mix of both. So you've been able to put hospitals in Mosul and stuff. You know, when you're talking about, you look at stuff and go, we can't do that. I mean, if you're putting hospitals in Mosul and all the stuff you're doing in remote areas, what can't you guys do? I mean, you're looking at spreadsheets and going, we just cannot make that work on the numbers or is it... The, is it conflict zones? What, what is it that you feel sometimes we're just going to leave that alone? So sometimes it's the numbers. We've won work where when we got into it with the customer, they you know, they were just unrealistic in what they were prepared to pay by way of overhead and margin. Sure. And we got to a position where I went, honestly, if you can find someone who can provide it for yeah. that price, you should take it. Yeah. I should warn you, I think the quality you'll get will be dreadful. Mm. But it, it's your call, crack on. We've done that. There was another one we did, which was a huge one in the UK very early on when we started, which was an outsource for defence in Germany, basically, for the British Army in Germany. We'd been shortlisted. They really liked us. They really liked us. Now, we knew the incumbent was very hard to get rid of. It was a not-for-profit whose patron was the Queen. Okay. Right? So, but they'd been there forever. They had a bit of incumbency, complacency. And the customer really liked it. So we'd spent a lot of time and effort being there, looking at it. And then um, a major opportunity came out in Australia, like major. And we just went, I don't don't think we can bid on both. Really? Because we just didn't have enough resources in the company to bid on both. I had a telecon with my team who said, look, we're a little worried about the workload here. We looked at it and I said, you're right. Okay, I'll ring the British MOD and tell them we're withdrawing. And the guy, are you sure you don't want to think about it overnight? And I said, you've come to me because you're worried. I've heard all of you. You were right. We're withdrawing. Wow. Okay. So I rang them. I sent them an email. So very sorry, you know, blah, blah, blah. And the Brits came back and said, this is dreadful news. If we extended the tender, would you be able to stay in? They wow. really, really wanted us to stay in. Yeah. And I said, no, I'm really sorry. This is a major piece of work. Uh, you'd need to extend for two months. And I know you can't do that. And they went, yeah, you're right. Well, would you come and see us next time you're in England? Wow. I said, sure. So we, and our argument was, if we're going to generate work overseas, we need to do it here. And if we don't bid on this bit of work and win it in Australia, then how is it I can go overseas and say, I couldn't do something in Australia, but I can do it for you. Yeah, sure. So we said, we have to win this. And that was a key part of us growing our defence business in Australia. That was really hard to do, but it was the right thing to do. So that was another reason to walk away. And the final one was one, again, we'd spent a long time winning. It was in the Middle East in a conflict zone. 
we won it. I sent one of my guys over. He was going to actually move over there to help set it up. And he rang me and my wife and I were on our very first holiday away <laughs> without the kids ever. And I do a two and a half hour phone call in the middle of this wandering around in the hotel in Singapore. He said, I'm really worried about these guys' security. They've uh, lost, as in dead, uh, 54 local staff killed because they don't have proper protection in the vehicles and this and that and the other. And he said, what do you want to do? And I said, we're not doing it. We're going to walk away. So we'd spent two and a half years bidding on it, spent a bunch of money to and from, and had been selected. And we walked away from it because we couldn't guarantee the safety of our own staff. And I'm none of us, Andrew or I, we are not in business to get a phone call at four in the morning that one of our staff's been killed because we didn't take appropriate risk management. With all the places that Aspen's working, and obviously you've travelled to many of them, what's something you can look back at and say moved you? Like what have you seen? What have you experienced in your travels on a human level that's made you proud of what you guys are doing but it's been memorable and moving for you? I've got to tell you, there's just so many things really because of what we do you know to go to i'll give you a local one we were servicing an indigenous community with uh, health professionals you fly to alice springs you get in a light aircraft you fly to tennant creek you get in a vehicle you drive six hours to the place you're staying you leave your bag and then you drive an hour and a half to this community and there is one nurse there supporting a community of 32 indigenous people of which 20 of them are children Right, without our nurse there, that community has to fly every single person out on an RFTS aircraft to Tennant Creek. But because our nurse is in that community, they stay whole. Their kids go to school. They're learning local culture. You know, they're they're growing and developing their community. They had a whole pile of programs going on because we had a nurse in that community. We were holding this thirty-two person community that ninety-nine point nine percent of Australians would never hear of in their lives and yet we were help making that whole that was very powerful when we were contracted to set up ebola clinics in africa a lot of people might know we did the australian government's response what they may not know is that we did the u.s government's response as well and we'd won that before the australian government contract so we were running four ebola hospitals on behalf of the american government in liberia and then we set up um, an Ebola hospital on behalf of the Australian government in Sierra Leone and then we took over two of the hospitals on behalf of the UK government but that very first hospital that we set up the very first person to what they call graduate so this was a girl who'd had Ebola her mother her father and her brother had all died of Ebola she'd survived and she was the first person to leave our clinic having now been declared Ebola free wow. right we had to find her grandparents, bring them in. We had to brief them on, you know, what it had meant and what she'd been through. And our staff made a wall about, you know, sort of four metres long and two metres high, painted white, called the Wall of Hope. And what happens is when you're leaving the Ebola clinic, you have to go through a chlorine shower as the final wash. Uh, your clothes are taken and they're burnt. New clothes are provided. And then they come out of the treatment centre. And all of our staff who've been in full personal protective equipment have never been able to touch that person mm. for the whole time they've been treating them. Now mm. they can. So all of our staff would be there to hug them. 
because health professionals, you know, it's, it is a, it's a very tactile profession and yeah. you'd not been able to do that at all. They would hug them. We'd give them a big certificate to say they were Ebola free. And then our staff who'd made this big white wall of hope, take that person across, little Amanita, still remember, put a hand, she picked a colour and she put a hand in his primary colour of paint, put a hand on the wall and then wrote her name. Really? What's interesting is she's the first person to come out, but she was the fifth person to come in. Oh, really? So, you know, the four people who went in before her didn't survive. And so to see that wall of hope with all these different handprints now over it and names, tiny little children's hands, huge, enormous baseball, <laughs> basketball-like player hands on it and the names on it, it's incredibly powerful that we change that community that we've kept families whole because so, of that. So for that to happen, what would you say are some of the values that inform this business that you've built? You can send a memo saying you will construct a wall of hope, it will be this high and you will hug patients for this duration, but obviously that's not what happened. What do you think are some of the core values? Because I've, I, I can say I know people who work for you who like you and like the, and love working in the business. If you go online and look at former staff, I don't know if you've looked at it, but I looked at it today, people who've left Aspen or finished with Aspen, and the vast majority, vast of feedback is there was a really positive experience. That's relatively rare in big corporate. So what are some of the values making this sort of stuff happen? What do you honestly think you guys have been able to breathe into the DNA of the business that, that make that happen? Look, I think we've done it since day one. Andrew and I have always had a very strong philanthropic bent around how we've grown and developed Aspen. And it's certainly something I've said as guidance to other people. Do it from day one. Yeah. So it doesn't mean they have to give lots, but it might be a bit of time. It might be a bit of support. One of the big things that we do is respect. And I think, you know, if there's a single word... It's respect for the position that we have. You know, I've, Andrew and I have been incredibly lucky. We were brought up by loving, caring families, uh, good friends, uh, brought up in a great city in Australia. We had a great education. We've got our health, got great families of our own, and we've been able to found a fantastic business. If we didn't give something back for any of that, we deserve a bit of a slapping, really. Yeah. And we've done that from day one. And that's grown into now that we have a foundation, we have, uh, we're have we a benefit corporation, uh, which is an external representation and auditing of what we do as a business around not just philanthropy, but sustainability and employment and all of those sort of things. We do match giving for our staff. We do a whole range of activities. So I think that that respect we have for the position we've been granted, for the opportunities we get, for the people we work for, and the patients we treat, I think that flows through everything. And I think our people see that. And so you don't need to sit back and say, make a wall of hope and make sure you get a good photo yeah, and, yeah. and treat people well with respect. They do that. I mean, in, in the Ebola work, we had 200 expats, so people from outside Africa, come into Africa to run that project. We employed 800 Africans oh, yeah. who we trained as well. We did not get one single infection across any of our staff, either non-African or African. A thousand staff, not one single infection in all of that time. Yeah. And I think that's because we look at everyone, doesn't matter whether you're Australian or African or Iraqi or wherever, we look at all of our people and say, how would I want to be treated if my family was in Iraq 
and the war was happening in Mosul? How would I want to be if I was living in Africa and, and Ebola was ravaging my community? How would I want to be if I was an indigenous community and we needed care? So, that we, we try to treat every single customer and every single patient as if it was us. I, I always say to people, what we have to deliver, I want to be able to take my family in and get that care there. I would trust my family to be treated in any of our facilities around the world. So where does this honestly come from? Because there's, there are plenty of people in business who are extremely mercenary, and we were joking with some previous guests about it's all about buying the next yacht. Where does this come from? I mean, it's a belief, but can you look inside yourself and go, was this that you grew up with, where you grew up, you know, new car? What is it that keeps you focused on those sorts of beliefs? Well, I know, to talk personally, you know, my mum and dad were always very good to other people, you know. They never crowed about it, you know, but there would be family members who would need help. There would be friends who needed help. And mum and dad always did that. And what's interesting is my dad's recently moved into residential care. So over Christmas last year, my whole family had to go and clean out my dad's house, 45 years of living in one house. Mm, so yeah. we went through everything. And I found letters from family members. I never knew. Dad, Mum and dad never told us who'd written to them asking for money to help with stuff. And mum and dad had obviously just done that because then there was a letter of thank you and everything. I, I don't think any of that money has ever been repaid. Yeah. I don't think they ever asked. But for them, I think they saw themselves in a pretty privileged position, yeah. which was, you know, they were white Anglo-Saxon independently, you know, they had their own jobs, they had their own business, and they lived in a great city with families and their health. Yeah. What's What not to be happy with? Yeah. And are you happier with another yacht? Are you happier with another thing? If there's anything we, as a family, we've spoken about having to sort of clear up my dad's house is, my God, we have a lot of stuff we don't need. Yeah. And what's been interesting is because all my kids came and helped. We were all there cleaning up. And it's not like mum and dad had a lot of stuff, but, you know, 45 years you get a lot of stuff, yeah. right? You just accumulate. So we're just working our way through giving stuff away, selling stuff. And all of us came home, all five of us came home and just went, you know what? I don't need that. I'm just going to clear that out of the cupboard. I'm going to sell that on Gumtree. I'm going to give yeah. that away. Because I think we've all realized that what's far, far more important than anything else is your health and your happiness. Yeah. Right? And happiness comes from great relationships with people. It doesn't come from owning a yacht. The brilliant biography of John D. Rockefeller, Titan, is, is a brilliant read. I mean, he died with a personal fortune in today's equivalent of $460 billion. And Gates is worth maybe 100 So he's the richest person in human history by yeah. miles. Yeah. But it's interesting, you know, the, the studies are pretty clear that, that wealth alleviates unhappiness to a point. And globally, it's about 200 grand. Anything over that doesn't exponentially increase human happiness. So it's kind of like once people have a baseline of being able to provide for their needs and are comfortable and have what they want, then... But I think our culture is obsessed with this idea that if we just accumulate more and more and more, and Rockefeller sort of was a, a great example of that not being the case, how are you going to continue this legacy? Like, you know, atrophy in businesses. We can look at many businesses that over the years... Have you thought about that? I mean, you've still got a long way to go in your business career, but legacy and how are you going to keep these values ticking over? What what has to happen in your organisation for these things to stay strong? Look, it's a really good question. Andrew and I 
talk about this on a pretty regular basis, to be honest. And part of it is us both staying engaged. So right now, Andrew is in southern Sudan. Mm. He's just been through Sierra Leone, Liberia, southern Sudan and Somalia, looking at all of our clinic operations personally. So not taking it on a report, not sitting in an office somewhere waiting. He's out reviewing all of those clinics, identifying what's going really well, what we could learn for somewhere else, what needs to be changed, what savings we could make. And, you know, my strengths around business development and I'm doing the same thing. Mm. So, you know, tomorrow I've got a review of one business unit's all their business development activities, the strategic stuff, the relationships I do. I was only chatting with my younger son last night. It's around staying hungry, yeah. right? Is, you know, saying to people, just because we're, you know, a couple of thousand people in 16 countries doesn't mean we get to be lazy. We need to be hungry. We need to celebrate winning the one paramedic on a rig as much as we do winning a 10 or $20 million contract over there. We need to to be excited about both and work out how do we get both and how do we get hungry and stay hungry to do that. That hunger, that passion to go, you know, I'm prepared to sit there at Saturday night at 10 o'clock finishing off a proposal to get it off to the Middle East so that when they wake up on a Sunday morning, it's there. You need that every day. And to be honest, I... Andrew and I both love that, you know. And it's still staying fresh for you? Mm, Absolutely. You talk about relationships internal and external. What do you like about humans? The diversity is just incredible. I just, you do talk about luck because you think, you know, I'm the luckiest guy in the world with all the stuff that I've ended up with being, you know, as I said, white, Anglo-Saxon, male, English-speaking, you know, you've been four lotteries already, right? To think, you know, genetic twist I could have ended up living in a village in the back blocks of Africa somewhere so uh, but how people overcome adversity how they deal with stuff how people even with very similar backgrounds can have completely different thought processes and bring different ideas to stuff I love learning from other people talking to other people my family know if we go to an event I'm going to be out chatting to people until they're stacking chairs on the tables because I just love that. I love talking to people about how did you get to here? What made you think of that? How do you overcome that? How do you, how did you make that happen? I love learning from people around what they've done and where they're going and what drives them or doesn't. Uh, I, I find, yeah, I just I enjoy interacting with people so much because I get so much out of it. Are you, are you an extrovert by nature? I think someone else probably needs to discuss it. I'm not a jump up on stage and hog the spotlight, but I'm very comfortable getting up and giving a talk. You know, my wife will say, you know, what are you doing? I said, I'm writing a talk for such and such. Must be important if you're writing it, because normally I'm just pretty comfortable standing up there with half a dozen bullet points or a slide and just talking to stuff. So I'm pretty comfortable in that environment and I'm pretty comfortable meeting new people and getting into an environment I'm not entirely known for. So I don't mind that. But, you know, jump up on stage and wear a party hat, probably not. But extrovert in the fact I'm pretty comfortable, you know, ice-breaking and talking to people, yeah. So we're going to talk a little bit about Project Independence because that was something that you mentioned you love doing outside of your professional work life as such. But in terms of this extroversion thing, what do you, what do, you do, say, if you're tired or what, what things give you life outside of the travel and the work and the complexity and the people do you, are you, do you read? Do you walk? What do you, what do you do just for you sometimes? Well, look, I, I love being with my family. 
to be honest, our uh, younger son's doing medicine. He's home for a couple of weeks before he heads off overseas uh, for six months. So spending time with him, you know, dinner times with the family is probably one of the things I love most. When all five of us are around the table, you know, great meal, a couple of bottles of red, chatting, you know, if dinner takes two hours, then that's absolutely fantastic because people will be talking and joking and we'll be, you know, sparking off each other and talking about movies or books or politics or what's been in the paper or what's going, you know, it's just, I love that more than anything else. I could do that every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Why? What specifically when they're all sitting there, what, what gives you life in that? Once again, I've got an amazing wife who has been incredibly supportive, incredibly smart woman in her own right. She's a social worker. She's heavily involved in Hands Across Canberra. She's an incredibly generous person. Um, I am definitely a better person because of her yeah. and, and the guidance that, you know, I start to wander a little off the tracks. It's not like she pulls me in, but she'll ask the question that makes me go, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, You know, I, I tell the story of, you know, when we started Aspen, you know, I was working at a um, a defence company and it was the start of the second Gulf War and we were watching the telly and they were running through all the missiles and I said to her, oh, we make that one and that one and that one and these guys make that one and we make the last three. And she went, so how do you feel about that? Really? And I went, you know, I don't feel good at all. Yeah. I think I should do something else. So, you know, that to me was one of those points of it's time to do something. So, you know, she's incredibly perceptive and and incredibly supportive, probably to the detriment of herself, you know what I mean? So I'm very lucky to have her. And then the three kids are are all quite different, but I'm incredibly proud of all of them and what they're doing and where they're going and, you know, what they'll do in their lives. And they're good people, you know what I mean? And so to sit down at dinner is like having five adults around the table now, and it's yeah, you know, just couldn't be happier. Uh, I do enjoy reading a lot. Yeah. So I, I typically I'll have, you know, a whole pile of books. I probably I think I got two more books for my birthday on the weekend. So I'm probably sitting there with fifteen books in my bedside table. Yeah. So I try to do a non-fiction and a fiction. Yeah. And flip those. I'm just finishing reading um, uh, Tim Flannery's Future Eaters oh, at yeah. the moment, which is just a brilliant book. I've yeah, just yeah. added it to my list of people who come to Australia. You want to read these now? It's four books. But yeah. yeah. So I, I read a lot, and then my wife and I have got a, some friends, and we, we do sort of walking holidays. So okay. just done a five-day walk in the Blue Mountains, which was just brilliant. Yeah. And we've walked in Tasmania and the Great Ocean Road and Italy and stuff. It's just been brilliant. I've got uh, I've got three kids under 10, so my experience of family dinner is a little bit different than yours right at the moment, but I am looking forward to the promised land of what you're talking about. Oh, but I, I, there wasn't a single stage of our life with the kids that I didn't enjoy, yeah. whether it was... Standing there on a, you know, those lovely cold Canberra Saturday afternoons Before watching you. soccer, uh, being at the AFL, yeah. being at, at uh, the school with the kids. Yeah. It wasn't a single period I didn't enjoy throughout that time. Each of them was different and unique yeah. and was just a wonderful memories. I want to ask you, like, we'll get back to business in just a second, but, you know, with the complexity of your life and the travel, what are you proud of? As a father, what do you think? Uh, what can you look back on and say? You know what? That part I did that part well. What do you? What have you done well there? I think they have an incredibly good sense of what's important in the world, more so than I had. Their interest in the environment, in social issues, other people, supporting friends who might be struggling, particularly with mental health issues. I mean, yeah. I don't remember at all 
thinking about friends having mental health yeah. issues or whatever when I went through school. I'm sure they were. I'm sure they were struggling. I didn't have any sense. But if I think now about how my children have spoken about helping friends or supporting friends that are struggling or to support social causes, you know, people talk, older people our age, disparagingly about youth. I, I think we are beyond lucky that they are there. I'm sure they're going to get there into their 50s when we're walking around with a walking stick and go, you left this for us. Yeah. We've now got to sort out the fact that there's not enough water, not enough food, too many people, yeah. environmental issues. And I think they will. Yeah. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of the young adults that all of our three children have become. Great. A couple more business questions and then uh, I want to talk about the last couple of things. But I always ask people about a moment of crisis and you talked about an early experience around cash flow and as business listeners know, cash flow is king. So I want to talk about that moment and you talk about how you learn to draw on the best of others and uh, not do everything yourself. Can you take us back to that moment to, you don't know, to give us detail as such on the issue, but you, you have a cash flow crisis early in the business. A lot of people listening will know that feeling. How did you experience it personally and how did you navigate out? So I was pretty much running the business day to day and we were really struggling. We had a major, couple of major projects going, uh, big cash flow issues. Uh, and one of them, I hadn't structured the cash flow model well out of the customer. So we would make all of our money back over a 12 month contract. But to be honest, the bulk of it was coming at the end yeah. because they hadn't given the volumes we'd expected at the start. And we just didn't have enough cash flow through the business, even though over a 12 month period, we'd be fine. I'm sitting in bed, reading, chatting to Mel. And I said, you know, I've got the funniest feeling. I've got like this little butterfly in my chest. And she went, oh my God, are you having a stroke? I said, no, 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 I've got no pins and needles, but it's just like like a little butterfly. It's quite odd. And she said, I want you to ring Andrew. And I said, it's 10.30 at night. I'll ring him tomorrow. She said, I want you to ring him now. Yeah. So I rang him and I explained. And he said, yeah, that's, that's called a heart palpitation. That's a bad thing. And I went, right. And he goes, so this will be happening for a reason. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. He said, so how are things going? I said, oh, look, okay. I've got a bit of a problem with cash flow at the moment. Bobby said, so just explain it to me. So I explained it. And he said, right, I'll be in the first plane tomorrow oh, morning wow. from Melbourne. And I said, oh, no, no, too. He said, yeah, I'm coming up. So he stayed for a week. And we had some really significant cash flow issues. And Andrew said, right, so we cannot afford for the projects to go wrong. So you manage the projects and I'll sort this issue out. And so that's exactly what he did. He lined up all our creditors, spoke to all of them, negotiated with them, did all of the deals, staged the cash flow, did all the payments. I was running the project, so we never skipped a beat in either area. But you know, I couldn't have done what he did. Yeah. And what he did absolutely made that issue be resolved. And me keeping the projects going and making them work, worked a treat as well. Yeah. So I sort of sat back and went, hang on, this is silly, I'm not good at all things. I need to find the right people who are good at the right things and get them to do that. And so that was a real eye opener uh, for me that, you know, just because you're sitting in the chair doesn't mean you have to make every decision, doesn't mean you have to be good at everything. It means you need to know where your weaknesses are and you better go find the right people to, to deal with those issues yourself. Let me ask you on that question. Uh, in, there's two schools of thought on weaknesses. One is you work on them and, and try and ameliorate the worst of your weaknesses. The other one is you kind of ignore them and plug that gap with other skill sets that other people have and you play to your strengths. Where do you fall on it, on the weakness-strength argument? 
I disagree with the second scenario, which is you ignore it and then plug the gaps. Because if you're ignoring it, you're not going to plug the gaps. Sure. So I think that the start, the foundation point for either decision is to work out what your weaknesses are. Yeah. And to that requires a degree of self-awareness. Self-awareness is not something that we are taught very well. Mm. So understanding what you're good at and you're bad at. And the worst one is when you think you're good at something and you're not. That's that's the worst possible scenario. Yeah. You know, oh, I'm a great people person. And why do people keep leaving? <laughs> Confirmation bias. Yeah, right? so yeah. understanding the gap first and then deciding, is this something I can correct, Yeah. right? Or is this something I need someone else? That's the decision point. So, you know, if someone said to me, you know, we need graphic art work done and I go, oh, I can't do graphic, but I can learn graphic arts, yeah. that would be... Uh, First up, it would never work because unless we're after stick figures, I'm never going to get graphics artwork. So why try to do that? Why not go and get someone who's really good at it and plug that gap? Yeah. And so to me, you've got to think, well, is this absolutely fundamental and critical to my job? Uh, in which case I better learn it or not be in this job, right? Yeah. Or go get someone who can do that for me because as long as I can interpret what they're telling me and then build it into, you know, synthesize it into solution, then I can afford to buy that in. But you've got to be self-aware and continually come back to be self-aware. But that self-aware thing is can also be expressed as in the concept of humility, right? I mean, there's that brilliant book, Humilitas, which is it sees it as a, as a crucial skill, the ability to be humble enough to go, and you've said this several times about not being the smartest guy in the room. What does humility mean to you? Are we talking about the same thing here, when it, about recognizing your weaknesses? Where does humility fit into business leadership? I think it's absolutely fundamental. I think it is absolutely fundamental. The moment you walk in and go, guys, you need to shut up and listen because I know exactly what I'm doing and you know, I'm not really interested in your views because this is what we're going to do, Yeah, then you've lost the case. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be prepared to make a decision. And I remember a particular scenario, we'd been approached by a customer who wanted to sole source a bit of work to us. Yeah. And I got everybody in because quite honestly, there was a little ethically challenging but it was really good work at good margin. And I sat everyone around the table, all the exec, and I said, right, I want everybody's opinion here. And I don't want you to feel like because someone said X, you need to say X. I want everybody's opinion. We went around the table and I was surprised. There was quite a diversity of opinion. Yeah. But I asked everyone, what do you want to do and why do you think we should do this? Went around, got to the end. And I said, right, okay, thanks very much. You know, asked a few questions. Said, right, we're not going to do this business. Yeah. And... You know, I genuinely wanted everybody's opinion. I genuinely wanted their thoughts and how they would go there. But in the end of it, it was our decision. We needed to take, Andrew and I needed to take responsibility for that decision. And so we'd go, well, we're not going to take that bit of work. We're just, it's going to damage what our profit looks like. But guess what? That's not where we're going to go. Wow. And so I think humility is really critical because you'll never know every topic the best you can ever do, yeah. right? And you'll have blind spots. So to ask people and be able to go, wow, I missed that. That's a really important point yeah. I'd not thought of. I'm prepared to change my opinion. Thank you very much. Yeah. That's really, really critical to do. And it's hard to do. And to be honest, the more successful you get in business and the more times you get asked to do a podcast or give a talk or you know, give an inspirational speech or whatever, the harder it is to do because people are going, oh, that was fantastic. Thank you. It was so inspirational. I'm going to do this, that, and the other. You have to keep coming back and going, yeah, I'm just the luckiest guy in the room today, yeah. and, and I've got to keep making sure I listen to that voice. 
you talk about in that crisis moment you expressed this where you said you have to find a way to let everyone contribute i want to talk about when you walk around your people here or overseas how do you find the best in your people is it a coaching that's building relationship do you feel you have an ability to just spend a little bit of time with somebody and go oh this is their x factor and how do you get the best out of your people everybody talks about first impressions but i've got a whole pile of first impressions i've turned around you know because there are people like me who sell pretty well right and so you have to work out am i just being sold to or am i hearing the truth i think andrew and i both have a similar model which is that we do a lot of management by walking around talking to people and you have to be prepared to do that you have to not be talking to them you need to have them talking to you because i can sit there and repeat the same story a thousand times to people but what really counts is when you say to people, so how's it going? You know, how do you find it? You know, what do you think we're doing well? Is there something we could do better? And, you know, just ask five or six prompt questions and listen to them. It's amazing that. And then, though, you've got to synthesize that because you can't take just the one person's view. You've got to take the 25 people you've spoken to, both overseas or at a site and back here, and synthesize it and go, yep, so I've heard some of this on this arc. I've heard something here. But in actual fact, I really think, you know, this direction right here, that's where we need to go because I've synthesized all yeah. of that. That ability to be able to take all the data rather than going, I heard one person who gave me confirmation bias and told me we're doing well or we're doing badly, so I believe them. Yeah. That's easy and yet very dangerous. One of the last things I wanted to ask you was around uh, talking about the best advice you've been given. And you talk about having a laser focus on key issues, what counts, knowing what you want to achieve and not getting distracted. I want you to talk to us about that. Because for anybody in entrepreneurship or business, there's an enormous number of things you could do on any given day. What are your filters? How do you leverage yourself when you walk in there each day? What stops you chasing the bright, shiny object or the next crisis or micromanaging something? How do you honestly do this? How do you develop your focus on particular things? Is it self-knowledge that you know where your leverage is? Talk to us about your focus and about not being distracted and and leveraging your your real strengths. Uh, Look, it's a really, really good question. And I'm sure that when my wife and others listen to this, you know, they'll be interested (laughs) to hear it because there's so many things I think I could do. You know, you just sit back and go, oh, my God, I was talking to so-and-so. You know, that'd be even a great cause to be involved in, right? Great things we could do. And so time is the biggest restrictor. So that's the first cut. Yeah. Now, do do I, do we as a business have the time to do this? Do I have the time to be involved in this bid or, or that particular cause or whatever? And time's really, really critical. No one's worked out how to make us live forever, so we've only got so many breaths and we've got to make the best of them yeah. while they're here. So then the overlay comes is, well, what's the most important thing to be doing here? And uh, sometimes it is taking time to sit down and, you know, go to the movies with your kids or read a book or, you know, I sat up last night chatting for an hour or so to my son about some stuff, you know, just time to do that, you know, so that's still a very, very important thing to do. If you come back to business, we still only have a certain amount of time. Now, I know that my danger is I'll go 17 things here we could do. Let's do all of them, right? And so for me, walking away from an opportunity, I just... A little bit of me dies every time I do that. Because I go, yeah, but if we just work an extra hour tonight, we could get that in, right? And I realise that's unfair. 
yeah. to the staff. So I, I have to look at it through their lens too, not just my lens. I have to look at it through their lens. Then you come down and say, well, is this a brand new opportunity that we've never done? And what's our chance to do that? Or is this an opportunity that is just a natural leverage from where we are now? I'm taking this one reference site and I'm multiplying it out by five times. Is that something I could do? I've got an extant contract. How do I keep that rather than lose that while I'm winning another one? Sure. So, you know, you then get around to efficiency. What's going to be the best use of time? Yeah. We've been asked to do lots of stuff outside direct healthcare, which we've never done. Because we go, there's so much to do in healthcare. Yeah. Outside of work, you mentioned project independence yeah. before. I give a lot of time to it because I think it's really, really important. Yeah. You know, if you have an intellectual disability in Australia, you have the lowest rate of home ownership of any sector in the country. Yeah. Any sector. Your typical accommodation journey will be to leave home, move into a group home. And a group home is standard, usually a standard residential home that's got three, maybe four bedrooms. And to share that with three or four people that you never got to pick. Sure. Now, when we left home or uni or whatever, yeah, that's what we went through in our 20s. But when you're 30, 40 or 50, is that a way to live? Uh, no. And so Project Independence allows you to buy your own home out of your pension. It's the only home ownership program like it in the country, perhaps internationally, and we're dramatically changing people's lives because of it. So to be able to look at that and go, well, here's a program that nothing else exists like it in the yeah. country. We are creating an opportunity for people with an intellectual disability to own their own home. And then over time, step away from project independence into truly independent living. Go buy an apartment or a house with a mate or with your partner or across town because it's close to your job. Because you can now do, can that, do that, that you would have never, ever had that opportunity to before, is so life-changing, so dramatic. How do you not get passionate and excited and make the time to make that happen? That. To me, it's around what is it that resonates? You know, and there'll be other people who'll listen to that and go, it doesn't sound very interesting at all. And that's cool. But there will be something that for them resonates and, and just makes them want to stay up till two in the morning or go do it on a weekend or go on five, five mates to help them deliver that. I always find that amazing. You go back to humans, what I love about humans, it's what drives us, what makes us decide to run a pipe band or, you know, collect money for St. Vincent de Paul or do a housing project or, you know, sew clothes for people in Bangladesh. All of those things are wonderful and they need to be done. And everybody has potential. Every single person has potential to do something. We all gave that time. We all found that resonance issue and exploited the potential we have within ourselves. Even if it's only an hour a week, an hour a month, the world's a significantly better place. So listening to you, it's almost as if you look at the world, whether it's through Project Independence, and I want, I want to talk about that more in a minute and point people to it. Well, you look at the healthcare situations in remote areas, it's like you look at the world and kind of go we could fix something here. We could do something. This seems particular to your nature, right? Like you see the way things could be, yeah? Yeah, I must admit, I do struggle when people go, no. <laughs> you know, that just really annoys me because I go, well, I haven't even thought about it. Yeah. You know, a, a phrase I, I sometimes use is to say, well, what does success look like? Let's just think, what would this be if it was to work? Yeah. So when we started, for example, started Project Independence, I just followed the idea of we needed more social housing 
you know, the ACT social housing waiting list has grown by 25% since 2012, wow. right? There's over 250,000 people on social housing waiting lists around Australia. Mm. So we need more social housing. And you can't expect government to go out and fix every problem. Sure. So I'm a big believer that collaboration's a great thing. Government, community, business together, we produce better answers than anyone trying to present it on our own. Also believe that we have a responsibility as citizens. Yeah. You know, that Roman yeah. idea. You could be a Roman, but not a citizen, yeah. right? And citizens meant that you contributed, you gave service. You're in the military or you're a politician or you're in the public service. You did something to contribute to your society. Yeah. We all call ourselves citizens. We should all do something. And to do something, you need to look at what do you need to do to be better than today? What's the solution look like? Once you define the solution, well, then you can work your way back and go, all right, so we were looking just at normal housing. And my son, who's got Down syndrome, said one day, you know, he was designing the home that he wanted to buy when he left home. Yeah bit of a slap in the face because I'd naturally assumed the other two would, but not him. Oh, yeah. So I went into my group, a little completely volunteer committee we had, and said, we're going to change the model. They're going to buy them. I went, well, that won't work. <laughs> There's just not enough money in the pension. And I said, well, let's assume there is. Yeah. How would we make enough money in the pension to buy a house? Well, we've done that. Oh, and yeah. it, it's now working. We've got 20 residents buying their own homes now yeah. out of their pension around Canberra. We've got 200 expressions interest out of Melbourne for the model that we've developed and grown here in Canberra for us to export to Melbourne. Two groups in Sydney want us to build there. So, you know, find the problem, define an answer, and then work back to how you get to the answer. And that's, regardless whether it's Aspen or it's Project Independence or the Canberra Business Chamber or the Invictus Games or you know, the other things I'm involved in, all of those were laid around, let's find an answer and then work how we get to there rather than going, oh, that all looks really hard. <laughs> There's so much in that. Like when you talk about, you know, this, the Roman idea of, of, of the good society, you know, my postgrad backgrounds in that sort of stuff. And, you know, we don't want to go down this path for long, but, you know, I think culturally and politically, there was a decrease in a sense of, I think, independence and interdependence. So one of the great things I think business can do is the generation of wealth, being able to do these sorts of things, it's something we can be really proud of. I mean, we've, we take at least 10% of what we create in our businesses and um, you can do some really cool stuff with it, as you know. Yeah. And, and I think people should be proud of it. Look, I do, and I think, sadly, we've lost some words that have got tainted through discussion, but I do think... You know, entitlement is a real concern. Yeah. And I know that Joe Hockey went and effectively quarantined the word. Nobody can talk about entitlement anymore without thinking of Joe. But I do think we should be sitting back going, well, what can I do? Now, yeah. that doesn't mean that you have to have a successful business and, and all of those sort of things. It, you could just be someone, and some of our greatest volunteers are people who are working in not high-paid jobs, yeah. who give of their time again and again and again to help others. If every person kicked in and did that, you know, yeah. imagine where we'd be. And to me, that's why I think that citizenship model is important because, yeah. you know, it's a little like Kennedy, right? Don't ask what, what your country's going to do, but you, what you can do, do for, for your country. country. People see that in a, in a far more, you know, almost a military service orientation. Yeah. But, you know, just helping out someone at the shops, yeah. helping out a neighbour, all of those things contribute. Now, the other good thing is, of course, all the research shows it contributes to your own health as well, yeah, right? Yeah. That you're all better because of it. 
But, you know, I think that's the thing that drives me is I think I've ended up in an incredibly lucky, privileged, honoured position. And so I better give something back. And it's something where I think I've got the tools and the wherewithal, the training and the experience to yeah. do that. When I wrote my first book, I had eight steps in it. And I think the, the final step I wrote was fundamentally around what I've always taught in keynotes and seminars around the meaning of life. And people just, some people disagree, but I think the fundamental vector of being human ultimately is around the concept of contribution. That, uh, you know, that famous French proverb, richest person in the graveyard is not the goal of life. So you're speaking about something incredibly important and very human that, and the science bears it out, that, that human happiness is often linked to the quality of relationships, things like altruism, service, contribution. So it's good to be talking about them. I wanted to ask you, one of our previous guests, had a, his eldest daughter has a, a major physical handicap. It was a really beautiful talking with him about that off air. The experience with your own son, how has it changed you? Um, that journey with the intellectual disability, what, how has that shaped and changed you over the years? Oh, dramatically. I had had very little engagement with the disability community before that. Aaron has Down syndrome. We didn't know until after he was born wow. that he had Down syndrome. My wife's a social worker and so she'd had a lot more exposure and understanding than I did. But for me, it was just like completely out of left field. Yeah. It meant that I got involved with the Down Syndrome Association, first up in Toowoomba and then here in Canberra. I then got involved with Special Olympics, which yeah. is sport for people with an intellectual disability. I'm now on the board of the NDIA. And then obviously Project Independence is about housing for people with an intellectual disability. Mm. I am a significantly better person because of Erin and because of my exposure to the disability community. Yeah. When I see sacrifices family make, particularly yeah. if you've got a child with quite a significant disability, be it physical or intellectual, you know, one of the parents will typically drop a career or take a back seat. Uh, so suddenly, therefore, not only are their career aspirations on hold or stopped altogether, but to even more so, suddenly their Income. socioeconomic position yeah. is significantly damaged. They don't blink at that. You know what I mean? They don't. It's not a discussion point because they know what's most important is their child, the person they're caring for. So, you know, that's been important because, as I said earlier on, pretty competitive. And to see the sacrifices my wife has made for our family, for me and work and for our family, but also to make me realise that, you know, every single success our son has had whether it was walking and speaking or getting a job or graduating or whatever, was enormous. Yeah. I think our other two kids benefited because suddenly I went, well, you know what? Some of those things that I might have thought were really, really important, yeah. not that important, and I need to put these things in perspective. So he's given me, and the community has given me a degree of perspective I doubt I ever would have had. Oh, yeah. What do you love most about Aaron? <laughs> He only said it today. I'll give an example. So we'll be sitting at the dinner table. We'll have dinner and Aaron will give a very big happy sigh. Yeah. And it just does this, ah. And he go, what does it mean? And he goes, best day ever. <laughs> and he go, why was that? He said, well, you made me bacon and eggs for breakfast. Oh, yeah. Mum's made us lasagna for dinner. I had dancing today and we're watching Doctor Who tonight. Like best day <laughs> ever. It's gratitude. 
But also what it makes you realise is, you know, I can come home from work and I can have had a really, really crap day. And I'll be sitting there going, oh, you know, I'm, I'm upset about A, B or C or whatever. And then Erin will launch into best day ever. And you go, you know what, you're right. You know, I'm at a table, I'm in a warm home, loving family. I've got food on the table. I've got a job. I've got friends and family. Best day ever. Oh, yeah. It's so beautiful to hear. Years ago, I worked with an American uh, Marine captain, and he had this quote every day where he used to go, Jonathan, you know what, Jonathan? Uh, every day above ground is a good day. <laughs> and uh, yeah. well, when you've served on the front lines in Afghanistan, I guess that's true, that gratitude of just, uh, you know, we probably take so much for granted. And I think people with Downs, their capacity for love and affection and kindness and stuff is something quite beautiful. You know, it's also no guile. You know, yeah. you know when he's happy. You know he's unhappy. Yeah. He can get, he can get unhappy. You know, you talk about, you know, he can get stroppy with his siblings or with us yeah. or with whatever. You know, so he he's got the full range of emotions. He's never just always happy. Always happy. But you know exactly which one it is. Oh yeah. Let me let's wrap up. I uh, I want to talk just Project Independence is. Uh, I'm going to point everybody to the website. It's a brilliant initiative and. How can we support you and how can we support Project Independence? You've got the Luton Ball coming up in August. We have the Luton Charity Ball. I have to say uh, Richard Luton's a, an amazing individual with what he's done with the Charity Ball. Yeah. We made some good money last year. Yeah. We're really, uh, they're hoping for five or 600 people. So we desperately need people to buy tables. Sure. Particularly businesses to come along, bring your customers or your staff or both along yeah. because I think they will see what you're doing yeah. to help great charities. So Hartley, Corinna and ourselves yeah. are the recipients this year, which is just terrific. Yeah. We have a website, which is just projectindependence.com.au. Yeah. There's an opportunity to make a donation. And look, it doesn't have to be cash. It can be volunteer time. It could be as a friend's of Project Independence. We're building our third house in oh, yeah. Philip. We've still got a bit to go. We've raised quite a bit of money, but we still have $800,000 to raise. Sure. Any opportunity, which doesn't, look, it doesn't have to be money. It could be someone saying, I'll donate all of the bricks or sure. we'll pay for the windows or we'll pay for the tiles or whatever. Yeah. All contributes and all helps. We've got that and uh, we've only got two people in our office. Uh, Rachel, who does an amazing job as our manager, she's brilliant. And then we've had quite a bit of support. The Snow Foundation yeah. here in Canberra, amazing, amazing local group, have been strong supporters of us for a long time. And they actually fund our admin person as well, which is just terrific. So that's projectindependence.com.au. I'll put that in the show notes. So if you are listening, if you're involved in business, um, get yourself a table. This is a great chance to to support something really worthwhile in our local Canberra community and, and have a great night with a bunch of good people. So... I'm going to put that in the links. I'm going to ask you a final question, and I'm going to ask it differently to what I normally do. I, I always ask people, imagine you're on stage and you, you're giving a keynote or a short input to 100 young business owners, and they're starting out. And I always ask people, what are the three pieces of your best business advice that you'd give? But I want to ask you something slightly different. What, what are your three best pieces of human advice that you'd give? What are the three things that you've learned in your life so far that you think people should know about how to live? There's nothing more important than family. Absolutely, number one is uh, really, really critical. The other is is that every person counts. doesn't matter whether it's the driver in the taxi, whether it's the CEO of a major corporate prime minister. It doesn't matter. Every person counts. We all contribute. We all deserve the respect 
that we would ask for ourselves. So every every person counts. And then the final bit is the one you actually said, which is uh, you can earn all the money in the world, but you can't take it with you. Yeah. So just think about what else that you can give back. It may not be money. It may not be goods, but it could be time. It could be just giving people just some attention, letting them know they're of value, talking to them, you know, buying them a cup of coffee might be all you can do. That will be more than you were going to do. 100%. I'll sneak a final one in. Look, in your Aspen journey so far, what are you most proud of so far in the whole journey? Oh, that's uh, that's incredibly difficult to answer. Look, I'm actually proud of what we've delivered, regardless of where it is, regardless of whether it's providing care for Ebola, the work we've just done in, in Iraq, uh, where we've treated 47,000 civilian casualties and delivered 3,000 babies, you know, in some of the most challenging environments, indigenous health, dental waiting lists. Really, what I'm most proud of is what we've created as a company. And it's not me, it's not even me and Andrew. It's every single person who works in the company. The hours they give, the time they give, the commitment they give. I could sit there and write the best tenders in the world, but without the quality of the people we've got delivering, we'd be lost. So, Glenn Keyes, I want to thank you, my friend, on behalf of a lot of people. It's been an absolute privilege to do this interview, and thank you for your humanity, uh, for sharing your heart with us, your business wisdom. Thank you for building something good in the world. There's there's plenty of stuff in the world happening that isn't good. When I get to meet people and talk to people who are building something that is making a positive difference, both in the social level and the professional corporate level, thank you for your witness as a husband and father and as a man in the community and and all that you bring and uh, we wish you every success at Aspen and thanks for making time for us today. No, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Real pleasure. Thanks, mate.